I'm not sick or struck dumb Or don't you know a kick 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 when you see one can't quit We're not done We're gonna kick 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 till the next one Hello fine people and welcome to The Kick a brand new movie podcast on the Now Playing Network. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. I am your host and hedge maze guide. We are on episode five of our first kick, Superior Sequels, where every guest brings to the pod a sequel they prefer to the original film. And today we are once again in the horror realm, exploring probably the boldest claim, I would say, of the Superior Sequels kick, but I'm really jazzed to speak to our guest about it. Uh, she is known to her readers as the Blogging Banshee, an expert chronicler and devotee of the horror movie genre. She is the author of the Uterus Horror column at the Certified Forgotten site and the co-author of the forthcoming book, Queer Horror, A Film Guide. Here to talk about Dr. Sleep, the 2019 sequel to The Shining. Everybody say hello and what's up, Doc, to Molly Henry. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to talk about this film. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm I'm jazzed about it too. I had never encountered the director's cut, so we gotta we gotta chat about that. Um, but Molly, before we get all the way in, I want to bring listeners up to speed with a synopsis and some comparisons. But I was reading your review of Doctor Sleep, which is still on the Blogging Banshee website from 2019. It seems like you were taken with it immediately so I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about like what's your journey with this movie were you a book person before have you rewatched it a bunch so I actually am um a bad Stephen King fan and I have only read I think actually just finished my fourth book of his and none of those are The Shining or Dr. Sleep <laughs> so uh my only frame of reference for this film was seeing The Shining and obviously being familiar with uh, Mike Flanagan's work. And so I saw this one opening weekend. I was so excited, uh, not only because The Shining is a classic, but and again, I love Mike Flanagan, but this one had such an amazing cast and I was going into it knowing nothing about it because I hadn't read the book and immediately fell in love with it. I thought a lot of the themes and visuals were so fantastic. Um, but that time in theaters was actually the only time I watched the theatrical version mm. because as soon as it was available to watch at home, I watched the director's cuts and immediately fell in love with that one even more. Yeah. <laughs> so since then, that's the only version I've watched. And I do, I would say I rewatch it at least once a year since it's come out, if not more. Uh, most recently, I actually just watched it uh, when I was back home visiting my parents uh, for the holidays. I usually try to force them to watch one horror movie every time I'm with them. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm happy to report they absolutely loved it. They And they also agree with me that this is a superior sequel. So wow. <laughs> I just wanted to All throw right. that out there. <laughs> want to bring in some special guests at the last minute here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I suppose it has, I don't know your parents' taste in film, but it, it, it is high-toned and prestige enough that I feel like a, a, a parent of a certain age could be like, this is also an interesting drama and get into it. Yeah, because it's not like it's not horror the way a lot of people think of horror. Because I right. feel like a lot of people that aren't into the genre think of it just as either jump scares or gore, things like that. Right. And this maybe has a little bit of that, but it's it's much more about the world building and the mythology and the characters. Um, it's a much more human story. So I think it's something that can appeal to a wider audience. Totally. All right. 
Um, I'm going to roll out the IMDb synopsis here, which I think this one is actually pretty good. IMDb synopses can be real spotty. But, <laughs> yes, very uh, true. <laughs> years following the events of The Shining, 1980, a now adult Dan Torrance must protect a young girl with similar powers from a cult known as the True Knot, who prey on children with powers to remain immortal. You're magic, like me. I need you to listen to me. The world's a hungry place, a dark place. Hi there. I only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid, I bumped into these things. about magic I I always called it the shining what does Dr. Sleep repeat from the shining well first and foremost it repeats Danny Torrance who now goes by the respectable moniker of Dan and is played by Ewan McGregor. He's no longer riding his tricycle around everywhere, but he does still possess his psychic powers or the ability to quote-unquote shine. He uses those powers to lock away the ghosts of the Overlook Hotel in boxes inside his mental facsimile of the Overlook's hedge maze. That's where his dad froze to death 30 years earlier. Um, And speaking of, Dr. Sleep brings back the Overlook Hotel, Uh, The hotel hangs over the first five acts of this movie like a hammer waiting to fall. You know the whole time that the story will be led back there, and it sure does go. Uh, The Overlook here is dutifully recreated by director Mike Flanagan and company, using the same blueprints that Kubrick used at Elstree Studios decades before. Also revisiting us are the characters of uh, Wendy Torrance in a few flashbacks with Alex Esso uh, doing a very capable Shelley Duvall. And we get uh, Dick Halloran um, visiting Danny as a spirit, explaining what it means to shine uh, as an adult and what it meant back then. Uh, Here, we have Carl Lumbly doing an incredible Scatman Carruthers. The first time I saw that, I was like, is that that (laughs) Scatman Carruthers? I did the exact same thing. I was like, there's no way he's still looking exactly the same this long after. No. (laughs) Unbelievable. And finally, I would say Dr. Sleep repeats the theme of addiction, uh, in part genetically and thematically passed through Dan's father, Jack, and in part to dull his mind. Dan is working on a pretty debilitating drinking problem when we first meet him as an adult in New England. He takes the bus to Fraser, New Hampshire, and gets sober with the help of a local Good Samaritan called Billy, played by Cliff Curtis, who gets Dan a job at a hospice facility. And there, Dan gets the nickname Dr. Sleep for the uncanny way that he releases the patients from their mortal coil when they're ready. And he also has the help of uh, Azzy the Cat, who's great at identifying people who are ready to go. These people, they hurt people like us. These empty devils, they'll eat what shines. And they've noticed that little girl. Wow, hi there. They're coming. 
So what does Dr. Sleep do differently? Well, so much. If The Shining is one of the all-time cabin fever parables, Dr. Sleep sprawls across the entire country, from Colorado to Florida to New England. In fact, the true knot on the interstate is kind of one of the more prevailing motifs and interesting visual choices of the movie. Uh, but yeah, so the, the true knot roves across the country. They're led by uh, Rose the Hat. That is her name, Rose the Hat. Rebecca Ferguson, who looks kind of like Mary Prankster era Ken Kesey meets an L.A. yoga instructor. Um, and the True Knot are Empty Devils, as they're also known by one of the subtitles in the movie. They're more or less a family of centuries-old predators who feed on the steam of special children. And by feed on the steam of special children, I literally mean murder the children and inhale their steam to stay ageless. Um, and this leads us to the last big thing uh, that is new and exciting in Dr. Sleep. There is no child with more steam than Abra Stone. A fellow New Hampshire write, her powers are not merely telepathic, they are also telekinetic. Um, and when she becomes psychically aware of the True Knot's crimes, she goes on a quest for justice that also draws the cult toward her and her steam. And as two local shiners, Abra and Dan join forces against the True Knot. She even calls him Uncle Dan. There's that chosen family theme again. Molly, anything else I'm missing that people need to understand about this movie before we dive in? You feel like no i mean this is pretty comprehensive i would say the only thing is just for people who aren't super familiar with the film or anything like that um while the true knot calls it steam for the context of dan and abra it would be their shine is, is right. what they're because so they're looking specifically for children's children's children with those abilities to devour them all right Time for the flagship segment. Molly, why do you believe Dr. Sleep is a superior sequel? So again, I want to preface this by saying I haven't read either of the books, so I don't have that basis of comparison. So um, the first thing is that even though The Shining is, again, fantastic film, it's going to be a classic for the, until the end of time. Stephen King himself historically has said many times he does not like Kubrick Shining. <laughs> he he um, doesn't like a lot of the changes that were made and kind of the tone of the film. And it, it kind of, from what I understand from what he said, is that the film adaptation that Kubrick did loses a lot of the heart and the emotional core. Um, so it's very much just like stark and bleak. And and I, I'm usually not a person who, who uses mean to describe movies, but in this case, I, I probably would say that. Um, it is I, and, Jack is like malevolent the whole yes. time and the film as we know was kind of made a little bit malevolently yes very much so <laughs> like, um, he like Kubrick is a genius but not sure I'm a fan of his methods <laughs> but and so because it lacks a lot of that Dr. Sleep the way that Flanagan did it really brings a lot of that heart back um, he had a really difficult task because he was not only doing a film adaptation of a book by a very popular author, but he was trying to find a way of bridging the gap and connecting it not only to the book version of The Shining, but the film version of The Shining. Um, and I think he honestly, again, without having read the books, I think he did a fantastic job of bridging that gap. 
And I did see in an interview that Stephen King even said that after seeing Dr. Sleep, it warmed him up a bit to The Shining, which I think is incredible considering for decades, he did not like that film. <laughs> so I, by the way the uh, Flanagan connected this film with that film, I think honestly even improves the shining film a little bit as well. So I think that is, is pretty impressive as straight from Stephen King for him to say that. And who am I to argue with Stephen King? <laughs> no. Yeah. That's a great, that's an achievement in and of itself to get him to come around on 40 years of trash talking. Yeah. <laughs> so when you picked this one out, you said it was your favorite movie from a Stephen King book. I don't want to make you keep saying you haven't read the book, so we're going to skip right over that. But yes. tell me why it's your favorite example of Stephen King on screen. I just, there's so much that I love about this film. I, I think that it does a really great expansion of the lore that's created in The Shining. Um, we we get a much better understanding of uh, people shine and, and the creatures I guess is a good way to put it that want to feed on that whether it be the Stanley Hotel and the ghosts there or uh the true knots um and that these things can sense it so I love that aspect of it I also love a lot of Flanagan's stylistic choices that he does really in all of his films I have noticed that most of his works kind of have that uh like green and yellow tone to them and I, I don't know, I, I mean, maybe it's because my favorite color is green. I love that color palette that he does in virtually everything that he has done. Um, and he just, he does such a great job of showing people working through addiction while utilizing the horror of it. Because that's something that, again, we've seen him do in, in other projects as well. And I think that he just has such a great understanding of it. And even just like the visual representations that he does in this that again are kind of part of the expansion of that lore, like the way that we see their shine or their steam um, when, when the true knot is feeding, like the visual representation of that. And I mentioned earlier that his film has a lot of heart, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it is really brutal at times too. Indeed. And he does a really good job of balancing that out. So it doesn't feel like you're watching I don't know, like cannibal Holocaust or something, you know, like it's right. not that constant brutality. It's there. The brutality has a purpose. It's not just there for brutality's sake. I also have not read the book, but um, I have read the Wikipedia page for the book. <laughs> and there are, I think we talk about like a good ad adaptation. I think there are like some obvious things that Flanagan left on the cutting room floor that were really good ideas. Like I think in the book, Kaylee Curran, or excuse me, Aberstone, played by Kaylee Curran, um, like predicts 9-11 with her powers. Oh. I'm not sure that that needed to be in the film. So that seems like a good call. We get we get a tasteful uh, downstairs piano playing sequence instead. It also makes sense because I think timeline wise with when this film takes place, she wouldn't have been alive, I don't think. Also, I believe that Danny... And Abra end up being related in the book. Oh, interesting. Jack is like related to Abra's mom. And I think having not been presented with that in the movie, I'm totally fine with that. I don't think yeah. we need that like more contrived connection. So 
Yeah, Good I things. agree. Because like you mentioned earlier, there's the whole idea of found family in this. And I am someone who is very much into the idea of found family. So I kind of like it better that they're not related. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to follow up on something you said, Molly. The, you know, the Shining is iconic in so many ways for its visual palette. What are your favorite aesthetic choices or, or moments or visual representations in Dr. Sleep that you think help create its own visual sense? The eyes of the true knot when they're feeding. I love that. I love that they kind of take on that like silver sheen. So when the light is on them, it's almost like they're wild animals. It's mm-hmm. like if you if you see videos at night of lions feeding on a gazelle or something, they have right. that. And it, so it kind of makes you think like these the true not they're not human they're 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 hunters they're animals so it's i love that aspect of it as well it's such a simple little detail but it really has a big impact and i love it it's so creepy (laughs) i don't understand you will i thought we lived forever did someone promise you that andy Did someone say you're immortal? I said, live long, eat well. We can live long, very long. And we do, most of us. But we haven't been eating well. Not for a long time. Let me ask you about Mike Flanagan, since you said you like his work writ large. The authors that he has adapted... um, is really piling up in a pretty yeah. impressive way because you've got you got multiple kings you got this in Gerald's game, you have Shirley Jackson, uh, Henry James, Edgar Allan Poe. What do you think makes him such a good interpreter of great or classical kind of horror writing? I think it's because, with the exception of his King adaptations, because I feel like his King adaptations. Te- tend to be a little bit more true to the source material. Um, for example, Gerald's Game is one of the books that I've read by by Stephen King. And that adaptation is almost <laughs> spot on exactly the same. Yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, and that's also one that when I read the book, I was shocked because if, if you, I had read the book first, I would not have thought it was one that could be made into a film. Um, Because she's literally handcuffed to a bed the entire time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when looking somewhat to the extent of of King adaptations, but more so when you look at the other ones, I think what makes Flanagan so great at bringing these to life is that he isn't as focused on getting every single little detail exactly the same. Instead, he focuses on... Um, making sure that he captures the feel of of what was written. He has like a lot of the same basic beats and and notes, but it's a lot more about um, translating it in a way that captures the essence of of the writing and what the author was trying to say while also making it his own. He's one of the few filmmakers that I've seen that's able to do that. I think the only other film that I can think of that that does something similar to that where it captures the feeling perfectly even though it's not necessarily a true uh beat for beat adaptation would be Annihilation Mm -hmm. um where like again 
the story ends up being very different, but the essence of it, the feeling that you get from it is the same. And I, I think that he, it shows that he really has a love and understanding and appreciation of the source material without feeling the need to perfectly recreate it. So let's talk about the director's cut. This is, it's quickly gaining steam in terms of No pun of intended. Like, oh yeah, it was not intended, wasn't there? Um, uh, just as a, you know, one of those, the more recent ones that gets mentioned in terms of like, no, 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 you got to watch the director's cut. That's where it's at. So what, what are, what do you view as the critical improvements by adding that extra half hour? I think the main thing is that we get a lot more character development. I am really big on character development in films. If if I see a film that has almost no character development, nine times out of 10, I'm not going to like it. <laughs> so, um, love the characters or hate the characters. I want to have a good understanding of them. I want to understand why they're doing these things. Um, and I think that... The theatrical version does a great job of that, but we get so many more little details and different understanding. I feel like there, I, again, it's been so long since I've seen a theatrical version, so I'm not positive if this was one of the editions, but I think one of the editions was one of the flashback scenes when Danny is a kid living in Florida with his mom and the mom looks at him, but she can't look him in the eyes because when she looks at him in the eyes, it reminds her of Jack this is all and in the director's so, cut. You're right. Okay, good. Yep. I thought so, but I wasn't positive. So, and then he goes into the bathroom and uses his shine to change the color of his eyes so that he his mom doesn't have to hurt anymore. And not only is that such a, a beautiful detail, but also without it, that was one of the things that actually bugged me. I was like, that kid and, and adult Dan have different color eyes. Why <laughs> I thought that it was just bad casting. <laughs> so very good and it's but it's such like it not only helps explain that but also it gives you such a better understanding of of this kid that even at such a young age he because of the trauma he went through he really has all this compassion and understanding and and wants to make sure that his mom is happy especially after everything that she went through um so just details like that I feel like it helps you to connect with the characters a lot more and it also kind of adds a bit to the the mythos as well like I never would have known that he could use the shine to change his appearance without that right so just cool I I love details like that It, it just makes me feel so much more um absorbed into the story and there's just a massive payoff at the end where the mom and the son are looking at each other in the eyes that if you don't have the like, she couldn't look me in the eyes, like, yeah. I don't know, that that you're missing 70% of the emotional resonance there. Yeah. Um, that's a great one. I, I'll toss out a couple because I was just looking at a very like obsessive kind of side by side thing that I'm very glad exists because... If you Google like what's different in the director's cut, it is just people being like, it's, it makes the characters deeper. It's like, no, tell me 10 seconds at a time what's different, yeah. <laughs> please. Um, there's just also so much um, Jack and Danny stuff. Like mm-hmm. when when uh, Dan gets his like eight month or eight year sobriety chip, he gives this great monologue about imagining Jack standing on the same stage 
and feeling a moment of hope as he held his five-month chip. A moment of hope that, you know, Jack Torrance in The Shining completely disavows by being like, five months off the wagon, worst part of my life. Um, but you just see, like, a son trying to understand his father. Because the drinking and the temper and the anger, those things in me were his, and they were all I could know of him. But now... Well, now I, I, I get to know him a little different because he also stood in a room like this once wanting to get well f for me and my mom. And he held, held a chip in his hand and that chip said five months. And on, on that day, he, before it all, well, on that day, all he wanted in the world was to stand where I'm standing now. And then when Dan is at the Overlook at the end, meeting, we'll call him the bartender, because he's not actually credited as Jack, but he appears yeah. to be Jack Torrance, <laughs> played by Henry Thomas. Um, there's just all of this really kind of get-under-your-skin insistence that that Jack still kind of, like, detests him. That he's just, mm -hmm. like, all, like, these, the wives of, uh, the mouths of wives and children, like they eat time. Like it's the worst thing you could do. Um, he he tells him not to help Abra. Just do the easiest thing there is. Do nothing and then accept the things you cannot change. He's like weaponizing AA speak to yeah. his son while offering him a drink. It's just like the, I, you could argue that's some of the best character writing in the whole movie and it's only in the director's cut. So yeah, I'm with you. Anything else you want to shout? even just the performances, like, like these people clearly did so much studying, like Alex also clearly did so much studying, watching that, making sure that even just the way she breathes sounds like Shelley Duvall as Wendy. It's so perfect. They did a fantastic job with that. Totally. And without, I'm, there's definitely a version of this movie too, where they do the, the Peter Cushing, Carrie Fisher, like just do it all in CG kind of thing and it would have been yeah. horrible and it's so it's so much better that they just cast capable actors and mm -hmm. turned them loose and i think before i i wanted to say one more thing just about like kind of like the kind of sequel that this is it does a really interesting job of like it's not pure continuity it's not pure homage i was trying to come up with the right term it's almost like a really good like echo sequel like it just treats the first movie especially the Jack Nicholson performance and the Jack Torrance character is just like just this atomic bomb that went off and mm -hmm. like reverberates through these people's lives. And it never like in a cringy way, like really eludes. It never has Ewan McGregor try to do a Jack Nicholson, but there are these like little moments. Another thing, great thing in the director's cut is when Dan wakes up, uh, after having, uh, hooked up with that woman at the beginning. And it turns out that oh. there's a toddler in the room and I don't think it's in the theatrical, but Dan looks at the kid and goes, what's your name, hero? Which is just such an interesting, like, playful, but kind of inappropriately playful thing to say in the moment. <laughs> but also being like recognizing a fellow kid whose life is going to be all fucked up. Yeah. Um, and just like stuff like that that shows kind of a darkness in Danny that there's it's just that little trickle, that echo of the Jack character while not, you know. Thank yeah. God there's no Kind CJ of alludes Nicholson. to what he could have become if he didn't 100%. go through and get his sobriety. 
hundred percent. Um, okay. Molly, next question. I am curious, what was your favorite performance the first time you watched? And who okay. sticks with you the most on rewatch? If it's the same person, that's cool. But I'm just curious. It's so difficult because all three of the leads are so amazing in this. I obviously going into it, I was excited for Ewan McGregor because he was, even though I was familiar with Rebecca Ferguson as well, um, Curran was in, was I think this was like her first big role, so I obviously wasn't familiar with her, but somewhat familiar with Ferguson, but um, I think the first time I saw it, I was probably the most drawn to Rebecca Ferguson's performance, um, just because up to that point, I, I don't think I'd ever seen her play a villain type character. Right. She had always been like the the love interest or femme fatale kind of character, you know? Um, so seeing her in this being someone who's so outwardly beautiful and someone who seems so charming, but then to see the horrible atrocities that she carries out is, and, and her, like her unrelenting quest to, to feed is so horrifying. And she, again, talking about balance, like with how Flanagan balancings, she does such a great balance of that because it makes sense that she would be the one like in the opening when she's the one that, that meets Violet and kind of draws her in. I like, if I were a little kid, I would be drawn to her too. Like she's so beautiful and like, she has a soothing voice and she has the funny hat and she's so charming that it's, she, she's really the wolf in sheep's clothing. And I think that that is so amazing. And immediately I was drawn to her. You're wondering why I'm wearing such a funny hat. <laughs> I always wear this hat. So much, it's a part of my name now. My friends, my very, very best friends, they just call me Rose the Hat. It looks like a magician's hat. It is. It's a magic hat. Do you want to see? Nothing of my sleeves. Nothing in my hat. Don't worry, that's my friend. You're missing the trick. Reach inside. And again, love all three of them, but I think when I saw the director's cut was when I was more drawn to Ewan McGregor's performance. And again, it's because we get a lot more of those scenes that we didn't get and a lot more of that character development and just the way that he conveys um, that probably realistically in everyone there is that dark side that if you aren't careful can kind of take over and seeing him grapple with that and and grapple with if he after he kind of swore off his shine and didn't want to do that anymore and kind of being like I am I going to do the right thing or am I going to keep hiding for fear of the potential of my darkness um, so I think that he just is so wonderful in that. And it's such a nuanced layered performance. Um, and I, I'm, a, I always love a complicated character and he is a very complicated man in this. And Ewan McGregor is amazing. <laughs> I agree. The thing I would add to both, um, just 
dead on about Rebecca Ferguson. She's also has these very motherly gestures. She's always yeah. playing with people's hair while she talks to them, which is very inviting. Yeah. Um, and then one of the Ewan moments that really jumped out to me where he, he's playing this character who is in a perpetual state of arrested development, like due to his trauma, like he is this and to audiences, like he is this little boy. And, uh, when he goes on that kind of gambit to try and trap the true knot with Billy and with Abra and it goes awry and he's like back in his room for the first time. And you kind of watched him for the last 40 minutes, like resemble more and more and more of an adult. Mm -hmm. He has his life together. He's able to, uh, you know, lead this little girl and have her look up to him. But then he gets back in the room after he's lost them both and he's just kind of instantly eight years old again. Like he doesn't have any defense. He doesn't think he can do it. And the first thing he does is like, look at the bottle. Yeah. And it's to keep that kind of like child in peril on the surface while mixing it with like an addiction theme is some stellar theme work and acting. Regardless of what happens in the film, even if he had never gone back there, I think that he kind of like how his inner mind is, is the maze. I think he always was going to be part of the Stanley hotel. Um, and that was a really good way of showing that was how, like you said, as soon as things go wrong, it's instead of thinking ahead and problem solving and stuff, he immediately reverts back or almost reverts back to his old ways. Um, and I do want to say, I, because even though she has a somewhat smaller role, like current is, absolutely amazing in this also um i feel like she um she brings the bit of levity to the story which i think is needed like she is the eternal optimist and and i think she's someone that dan needed in his life too not just to make him realize that like that there's nothing wrong with using your shine there's nothing wrong with you for having this ability um but also just because i think he has not had anyone that he could call family for a really long time. And she immediately, even as a little girl, the first time that she was able to sense him with her mind and stuff, immediately was like, you're my family. We are the same. You can hear me. Let's use our outside voices, all right? You tracked me down? It was easier than I thought. Like GPS, but in my head. Look, I don't mean any offense, but this day and age, grown man sitting with a teenage girl on a park bench. I'm Aberstone, and if anyone asks, you're my uncle. Uncle Dan. What's your favorite Shining callback in this movie? You know, I originally had a different answer for this, but now that I'm thinking about it, I think one of my favorite callbacks is actually when um, Dan and Abra are driving to the Stanley. Um, because this is, this. I don't know if this is something that you know. For listeners, this might be a fun fact. That footage, the the overhead footage of Dan driving at night is actually the same footage from The Shining. For some reason, they weren't able to, I can't remember what the reason was, but they actually weren't able to duplicate that footage. So what they did is they just took that, sh those shots, uh, the overhead shots of Jack and Danny and Wendy driving up. And then they just color treated it to look like night. They added the snow. They changed the color of the car but it's the exact same footage. Like if you watch them side by side, it's it's the same. Molly, you like me are an Oregonian, yes? Is this true? Yes. Have you been to the Timberline Lodge? Do you have any interest? 
I, I have not gone yet. I really want to go. Um, I know like the Overlook Film Festival, I think the first year, I can't remember if it was just the first year, was actually at that hotel before it moved to uh, New Orleans. I really want to go. It's uh, it's something that I do plan to do at some point. I just haven't yet. Cool. Um, and there's some weird restaurants in there. It's an experience worth having. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, if The Shining is, as some people have said, actually Kubrick admitting that he faked the moon landing, go down this road with me. How does Dr. Sleep contribute to that conspiracy theory? So, I will say before uh, you invited me onto the show, I had not heard this theory. I will fully admit. So, I had to do some Googling ahead of time. Okay. And first, I want to preface this by saying I think that is absolutely insane. Um, And even if it is true, thinking that it would carry over to Dr. Sleep would like people who, if there are people who believe that, would be silly because it's not directed by Stanley Kubrick. But if if I'm keeping that, um, the basic idea that I got from what I read is that Danny, young Danny in The Shining kind of represents the truth about the moon landing. And he like represents that Stanley Kubrick faked, a, a filmed a fake moon landing and that's what mm-hmm. everyone has seen. And then Jack kind of represents the powers that be trying to beat the truth down and keep it a secret. So if we're going based on that, one way that I could see it continuing is that um, adult Dan's kind of denial of his abilities and and trying to forget what happened could be an extension of that. So it's kind of a denial of the truth. And then Abra sort of represents the 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 freedom and the the kind of weight off his shoulders that he could have if he decided to tell the truth. You took this so seriously. I really appreciate <laughs> you were left. Yeah. You went deep inside. You tried yeah. to understand a reading on the first film that you wholeheartedly did not agree with. Yes. And then and extend it. Um, I'm gonna go a little more tinfoil hatty. Uh <laughs> so right after they get to uh after they leave the overlook, Wendy and, and Dan, they move to Florida near Cape Canaveral. Mm. Suspicious, no? That's very Um, true. (laughs) Thank you. And then uh, Dan's first job in New Hampshire is at this teeny town, this kind of like models of things, which is very clearly like the kind of scale models that one might use in a studio if one were to fake a moon landing. That is a good point, especially because that that was a lot of what Cooper did, like in 2001 Space Odyssey was like film sets and then later adding the characters that were moving. So. That's, you that's seem almost convinced. Mm. No. Have you <laughs> have you watched uh, that doc, Room Two Thirty Seven, about all the all the? I theories? have not. I've read about it, but I haven't seen it yet. It's such an interesting example of people being really, really passionate about a film, but not um, just not really engaging with the film on its terms in any way, shape, or form. It's almost like experimental film criticism, and it's it's. Pretty bonkers. I mean, um, I I could talk a lot about different films that people watch and completely miss the point of it. So. Sure, sure. Um, last one is more of a life advice uh, 
question, Molly. I would love to start referring to special people in my life as having big steam, but uh, I'm worried that then they'll leave me. Uh, what do you recommend I do? Um, I I think something that would help with that is if you just preface that you don't want to take their steam, you, you just, you think that they're awesome and they have big steam, but they, they can keep their steam. You don't need their steam. You have your own no. steam. No, I'm going to live <laughs> a long time all by myself. Um, <laughs> that's, that's actually really practical advice. Uh, thank you. Um, okay. Let's move on to a quick segment. I am calling the empty devil's advocate. Not that The Shining really needs any defending. It's a classic. But I'm going to talk out some pro-Shining takes. And I would love your rebuttal. So some people who like The Shining might argue that the four lead performances in The Shining are better than any of the performances in this movie. Your response, Molly? Um. Well, again, always have to say that The Shining is amazing and those performances are amazing. However... I, when it comes to young Danny, I don't think we get as much variety in his performance, even compared to the the kid who plays young Danny in Dr. Sleep. We get a mm. lot more emotional depth from him. Um, and then, of course, adult Danny even goes further. And Aberstone, I think even we get more like she kind of has like this precociousness to her that I like. Um, so... And also, I, I just think that we get a lot more layers uh, to the characters. And, and this is also partly because the writing and directing and stuff, but the performances, it's they're much more nuanced and there's a lot more layers and depth to them. Yeah. Um, and also just the fact that, I mean, Kubrick literally tortured Shelley Duvall to, to get the performance that we know and love from her. <laughs> so I think that that, um, I mean, because I, I think I grew up watching... Um, Oh crap! Now I'm not gonna remember what it's called. Um, but the the show that Shelley Duvall did back in the day that was like the fairy tale one, oh, um, where sure every episode she would start, "Hi, I'm Shelley Duvall." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blanking what it's called, but so we I knew I grew up watching her that she's a fantastic actress, but she probably could have pulled off that same performance almost, but he felt the need to emotionally torture her throughout the whole thing. <laughs> Fair. Is this fairy tale theater you're thinking of? Yes, thank you. I could okay. not think of it. <laughs> I don't know if I know it, but she she was the host, huh? Yes, and she she starred in every episode too. Uh, the oh, one I remember okay. the most is the Rumpelstiltskin one. Hello, I'm Shelley Duvall. Welcome to Fairy Tale Theater. For centuries, storytellers have spun their tales of magic and enchantment for the young at heart. Some are funny, some are romantic, some are scary, and some, well, have a little bit of everything in them. Okay, one more. What would you say if I told you that the Overlook, while dutifully recreated in this movie, just simply does not look as good as it did in The Shining? Um, I mean, I personally think it does. But also, it's it's supposed to have been closed down for like decades. So do you would you want it to look as good? <laughs> I, I I guess I mean I I guess I don't mean the hotel itself is not in as good of shape. I it just the the lighting is it's like there's almost like a little more glisten on it, like a little more polish. I think that's something that is kind of a, a stylistic thing that again is kind of part of Flanagan is that a lot of his films 
look like their sets more so than real places, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing because it's still like they did such a great job recreating like that main uh, hall where the staircase is, where where Jack's desk was, where he did his writing. Like that looks exactly the same to me. <laughs> and it, I mean, aside from the lighting and aside from it looking older and dingier, uh, and even just the little details that we see when they're when they're walking through the hotel at the climax, they really didn't leave anything out. Like every single little detail that we know from The Shining was included in this. We have the red rum. We have the, like the axe hole in the door is exactly the same. <laughs> um, so I I think it looks great. I do think that it has a little bit of a set look to it, but I also think that that was a stylistic choice made by. Flanagan because again like if you watch uh Haunting of Hill House it kind of has a similar look to it um and I think it speaks to the artistry not just of his personal style but also of uh the production designers and the set builders I I think that it almost gives them a bit more of a chance to shine because again no pun intended (laughs) But it, it really kind of highlights their work a little bit more, I feel, when when you can tell it's a set, but not in a bad way. If I was going to join you in, in your rebuttal, I would say also they had like six weeks, I think, to remake it. And I'm, I think Hubert's oh, people must have taken a year. Um, oh, probably, yeah. So there is that. And then also one of the things I was feeling about, like the way the Overlook comes about in this movie it's almost like not even a real place anymore. Like the question of whether the ghosts in the boxes are at the actual hotel, actual hotel in quotes, or just in Danny's mind or how that even works. It doesn't, it almost like doesn't matter. Like you're just in this figment, this locus of trauma that like, it's not a hotel that someone took a job at anymore. So if it looks a little different or if the digital photography makes it look a little more ethereal, you know, so be it. Yeah, it almost takes on the the image or vibe that it itself is a monster that's totally. that's going to devour them. Um, and I think that's probably an important distinction because obviously in The Shining, we're just supposed to think that it's a hotel. Um, and it's only later that we learn it's it's not really the ghosts there that are the problem. It's the hotel itself. The hotel itself is the evil thing that wants to feed on people. Um, so I think kind of giving it that look makes it seem like the the monster that's going to come and get you in the dark. Final or penultimate segment. Uh, it's called truth or trivia, Molly. You get to choose. Would you a question you want to try to answer honestly, typically relating to movies or trivia about Dr. Sleep? What do you want to go with? Oh, this is tough. Let's. So I, I tend to be an overly honest person. So let's go truth. <laughs> What's your favorite movie ever to appear in your uterus horror column? Favorite movie you've written? Oh, about? that one's very easy for me <laughs> because it's it? also my favorite horror movie. It is Ginger Snaps. Ginger Snaps. Um, yes. I don't know it's, if I know Ginger Snaps. It's, uh, I believe it came out. It depends on if it's, it's a Canadian film. So the, the release date, kind of depends but it's around 2000 um it is canadian werewolf horror film about uh two sisters and the older one is ginger and the same day she gets her first period she is attacked by a werewolf Mm. and so it uses 
lycanthropy and her gradual transformation as a metaphor for the biological changes. And it takes a, a much more biological approach to werewolves as well. It's not like you change at the full moon and you change back. It's a permanent transformation. Mm. Um, and it's such a great story and the dynamics between the two sisters and they're like the like weird goth outcast kids and stuff, which I relate to. <laughs> um, so I, it's just the way that it's honestly that and Carrie are the two films that made me start the column. Mm. Um, and there are actually three Ginger Snaps movies too. And I love all three of them and I've written about all three of them, but the first one is still my favorite. Uh, I'm going to force you to do one trivia question that I found interesting. Perfect. Okay. Rose the Hat's hat. Okay. What is it made of? That's a good question because I like my initial reaction would just be like, it's a normal hat. Like, like what do they make top hats out of like silk or something? So you're in the ballpark. I am, I am asking like, what is the, the answer is not like children's souls. It's what is the, (laughs) yeah. What is the top hat made of? Well, but you also have to think like if, if she's been around for as long as she's been around and her name has always been Rose the hat, it has to be something sturdy enough to, have lasted centuries potentially you're getting there yeah it's centuries old it's a it's it's a fabric that would have been in fashion two to 250 years ago it was actually an oregon export in the early americas interesting i mean the only things that i can think of is if if not silk like maybe like a taffeta or something (laughs) i'm not great with fabrics it's a beaver pelt that's no, fab- it is not. That's the fabric. Yes, this is what the costume designer said in a Blu-ray special feature that I watched. Oh. They're like, we had to find a beaver pelt hat because it would be 300 years old. Yeah, I, I guess think that makes sense. That would last longer. Yeah. Too. I would like uh, it would last a hell of a lot longer than silk or anything. Wow. And that, I mean, that makes sense. That seems like something she would do too. I'm going to wear a beaver on my head. So Molly, the the capper on the Superior sequel series is is a Dune 2 episode where we're going to ask, is this a Superior sequel? So I'm asking every guest, um, just quickly, do they care about Dune 2? Are you expecting anything from Dune 2? Do you care about these Dune movies or any Dune movies? Any thoughts? Yes. So I I am very excited for Dune 2. Um, I, I'm a weird Dune fan. <laughs> Uh, I've never read the books again. Um, but, and I actually only saw Lynch's version for the first time just a couple years ago. I actually grew up on the sci fi channel miniseries of Dune. Oh, that's what I watched. So that's Is, what I'm familiar with. Do we know anyone in that? Are there any actors um, we know? Yes. From like, I think William Hurt was in it. Um, oh. There were other big name actors that I'm, I'm blanking on. And there was, they even did a few years later, they did a sequel miniseries that was Children of Dune that starred James McAvoy. How about that? Children of yeah. Dune. Um, I actually just recently bought uh, the Dune miniseries on DVD because I want to rewatch it because I haven't seen, because like they used to play it on TV all the time, but obviously I haven't seen it in. 15 plus years um and so like that's the version i grew up on um which is it's the made for tv version so it's a little different (laughs) sure but i actually really liked the first dune that we got for this new iteration um 
again, like I don't know how accurate it is or anything, but I, I thought the casting was really great across the board. I thought the performances were great. The costume design especially is absolutely gorgeous in that. And yeah. again, Rebecca Ferguson. I love Rebecca Ferguson. Right. Yep. <laughs> the production design is really great too. The way that they created, um, like in the first one, the place where when they first go to the planet and uh, before the the coup happens. Right. Like it had, like it's so um, industrialist, yeah. you know, and it, and I, I think that's a really good contrast when they escape and they see where the people who are indigenous to this place live. Um, but yeah, I, I think that just from the trailer alone, I think it's going to be even bigger, like, potentially could maybe be better. We'll see. I mean, it has Florence Pugh in it, so there's a pretty strong chance. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I'm definitely excited to see this one, especially since we've had to wait a little bit longer for it too. Right. Well, I, I'm very glad I asked. You're definitely the first person to bring up the sci-fi TV show. So that's, yes! I'm, glad you got that in. <laughs> I'm uh, probably one of like five people who remembers and loves that. So. That's awesome. Um, Molly, I, I thank you so much for your time and talking about this movie. Is there anything you want to plug here at the end? I do my uterus horror column on Certified Forgotten every month. Um, just had one come out recently that uh, was Return to Oz. Um, I read that. It was great. Which, thank you. Which some would argue isn't horror, but if you were a child when you saw that, it is horror. <laughs> sure is. Sure is. <laughs> and uh, I actually just finished writing the next one today, so won't spoil what that is, but I have those usually every month, sometimes a little variability. Um, and then I just... I've been a little slow with reviews lately. I've taken a little bit of a break, but I'm probably going to get back to that soon. So just if you want to keep up with that, uh, all of my social media is just my name, Molly Henry. Just don't forget the extra E in my last name. (laughs) And the only place that it's not that is on Twitter, which I will never refer to the other name. And there I'm at Blogging Banshee. Very good. I would encourage everyone to, to keep up with Molly's writing. Uh, Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. And uh, shine on. (laughs) You shine on too. Thank you again for having me. This was great. 